Hi, everyone. Welcome to Breaking Twilight. If this is your first time listening, we just wanted to give a little bit of a disclaimer for the first two episodes. Episode one and two are the first podcast episodes we'd ever recorded. And while we do think they have their merit, we admit that there was a learning curve for us. We've come a long way since then. If you find yourself struggling to get through them, we get it, and we strongly recommend skipping to episode three or browse through some episode titles and pick a topic that interests you. There's no need to listen in order. We really have fun making this show, and we want to say thank you for giving us a chance. Have fun listening. I know what you are. See it. The podcast. Hi, and welcome to Breaking Twilight. This week, we'll be talking about the Twilight Saga as a whole and why it was popular. I'm Steve, and I just wanted to be included. And I'm Gwen, and somebody told me this book was about a vampire trying really hard not to eat his girlfriend the whole time, and, like, I guess they were kind of right. So The Twilight Saga was published between 2005 and 2008. The series overall was four books long, and there have been several outside-of-canon editions since the release of Breaking Dawn, the final book. In addition to the books, the saga was adapted into five movies released between 2008 and 2012. The series exploded in popularity during this time. Whether you loved it or hated it, everyone had an opinion about this love story between Bella Swan and Edward Cullen. While the concept of a human and vampire romance is a tale pretty much as old as vampire legends themselves, this one in particular really struck a nerve with horror fans. People were infuriated with how Meyer's vampires were depicted, having inconsistent secondary powers, and of course, sparkling. So let's start off by talking about some of the things in the books that were appealing to people. Like, what did people like about these stories? One thing that really appealed to people was uh, that Bella was essentially a blank slate. It was very easy to project onto her. Like she, she doesn't really have any personality, any kind of traits or hobbies or anything. She doesn't like going outside. She doesn't like doing anything inside she reads books sometimes i guess like she's not i don't know if she even does that like i feel like i remember it being mentioned that she doesn't like reading books like that's not a hobby of she hers. likes reading um exactly two books which are wuthering heights and romeo and juliet that's it oh my god those are the two worst books yeah and she's read at least wuthering heights so many times that it was like falling apart so like you know that's Is that's it, kind of her stick. Who? I can't imagine a teenage girl in 2005 reading Wuthering Heights enough times that it was falling apart. I am a grown ass adult and I don't even want to read it. Like I tried. <laughs> I opened it and it was horrible and I closed it again. Like that's not realistic. Like if there was a book that I could reach that point with, it wouldn't be some old ass. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it'd probably be Howl's Moving Castle. But see, that's fun at least, you know? And that's a fun book that's easy to read. It's not like heavy-ass period drama. Exactly. I don't know what he- Wuthering Heights I, is about. I also don't. I feel like I'm going to have to read it for this podcast, and I'm not looking forward to it. I imagine it is some garbage romance, like, kind of like Pride and Prejudice, but way, way, way worse, because Pride and Prejudice is but actually Pride good. and Prejudice is good. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, watch you eat your words after you read it. I can't wait for you to give me the cliff notes. God, I don't want it to be good. I want it to be awful, but it's going to bite <laughs> me in the ass, probably. You just no, want it to up. be awful because Stephanie Meyer likes it. Exactly. Like, Bella doesn't... Bella's one other interest is Romeo and Juliet. I hate Romeo and Juliet so much. 
Yeah, we got some opinions on Romeo and Juliet. So I I have some very strong opinions on Romeo and Juliet. I think it's Shakespeare's worst play. Ooh. Not that I've read all his plays, but that one was pretty bad. Fair. It was something. I think maybe it got looped into the wrong genre, you know? Yeah, I mean, I probably like Romeo and Juliet more if, like, it wasn't shoved down my throat so much as a romance and it was more, like, a political drama. Mm-hmm. Which, like, it could totally be read as, but, like, our shitty English teachers in high school were not having any of that. Yep, exactly. And that's kind of... It kind of leads into um, some things about Edward. Like, so, some of the lines in this book are pretty good, just not by the people well, they're spoken to and from. But also, like, you can see a lot of influence being drawn from Romeo and Juliet, especially in the mm-hmm. second book. About, like, the whole misunderstandings ending with them both dying. Except, of course, that doesn't happen. They both live. But that was definitely kind of what they were headed towards with that whole Charlie's planning a funeral thing. <laughs> Do they both live, though? Bum, bum. I mean, they both end up undead forever. Spoiler alert if you haven't. <laughs> anyway, we have got... Off track. Anyways, um, people like <laughs> someone who actually likes Romeo and Juliet might actually like Twilight. Um, go ahead. Um, no, you're right. Finish, finish up what you were saying. Um, Bella is a blank slate and basically like an avatar for you to go and have this cool vampire romance with because she doesn't do anything. You can just kind of. You know, VR before VR was a thing. <laughs> Plug into the books and have a good time. And that kind of leads into my point that, like, the books were very much about escapism and having these two characters that have no personality whatsoever. They have no kind of unique individual traits that are clearly that person. It makes it very easy to kind of just project yourself into that role and project whatever kind of traits you want your partner to have into Edward's role. Because, mm-hmm. like, the only traits he really has is loves Bella. Yeah. That's it. That's his whole personality. He doesn't even have a lot of physical traits either. He's got the, like, kind of red hair, and he's hot. And that's it. That's it. That's the two ways he's described, mm-hmm. hot and red hair. And where's khaki? Oh, there's so much khaki in this book, you guys. Oh, my God. The- like every other sentence, he was wearing the sexiest thing imaginable. Khaki shorts. God, this one part, I want to say it's in the beginning of New Moon. Where, yeah, Bella rolls up to Edward's house for a birthday party. And Edward and Bella and Esme and Carlisle are all standing in the same room wearing khaki. And it is the worst image I could possibly conjure. <laughs> Even the women are wearing khaki? Yeah, well, like, beige or whatever, pencil skirts. Like, they're all wearing the same color. Wow. It's terrible. Here's the thing about that, though. Like, Edward and Bella, as we've covered, are just completely blank slate characters. They have no real unique personality traits. Everything talked about them is in very vague terms, making it easy for you to just kind of fill in the blanks with what you want them to be. But it would be easy to look at that and be like, oh, well, maybe Stephanie Meyer just doesn't know how to write three-dimensional characters. But we know that's not true because all of the side characters in this universe are actually fleshed out with interesting backstories and interesting personalities. Like, 
So we know that Stephanie Mayer can do that. She just chose not to with her protagonists. Meyer. Meyer, yeah. I'm going to, it's going to take me a while, listeners, to uh, start saying Meyer, which is the correct pronunciation, but I have been saying Mayer for 11 years. Like 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're going on 11. Definitely going on 11. <laughs> Whoo! Yep, Oof. okay. 2020 is the year of uh, looking back. Yeah, no, we met in 2008, so it's 11 years. Oh my god. <laughs> but yeah, let's talk about some of these interesting characters, because they are... They are... There are interesting characters in this story that, like, it almost would have been a better story if they were the protagonists. But, like, it, it makes me feel like this whole blank slate where you can fill in the blanks was almost intentional on Meyer's part to make this an appealing story to people who want escapism. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know from, uh, just from my experience... List, or listening, reading about some of these other characters kind of kept the story going for me, you know, because it's Bella's parts are all like she goes to school, she sees Edward, she goes home, she sees Edward again, she goes to school again. Like she's not doing anything super exciting, but you get these glimpses of like Alice, like dancing through the cafeteria. And then you've got like her friends chatting about hanging out after school and like they have more of a life than she does. And you kind of get to see that and wonder about that and it keeps you going because you want to see where they're going i think like being gay and not realizing it in high school is projecting onto alice culture oh man you're right aren't you yeah (laughs) anyways yeah so the other characters like they each have actual dimension to their characters like we know alice is like this quirky kind of like upbeat cheery person who like always wants to like kind of I don't know how to describe it like she is the manic pixie dream girl but she's not in a manic pixie dream girl story she's like a fully realized person who has thoughts and feelings and we can get a feel for what she's like and what her personality is like same with Jasper and Rosalie and Emmett Alice is the manic pixie dream girl of her own story she's she's the she is her own manic pixie dream girl and then like Rosalie, you start out kind of seeing her as like the preppy girl archetype. Like she's so pretty and she's a little mean and she's like blonde and tall and skinny. And you're like, oh, this is a mean girl. But then like, as the story goes on, you learn more about her and like how she didn't want to become a vampire. And the reason she's so mean to Bella is because she wouldn't wish this life upon anyone. And she doesn't want Bella to get caught up in this and not realize the consequences. And like, that's character depth. That's interesting. That's more interesting than what we get from any other character, any of the main characters in this book. Although I, I do want a sidebar that I don't think any of the Cullens wanted to become a vampire. But they always use this as like a, oh man, no, I didn't but- choose this life. So, you know, you shouldn't want it. But like, nobody did, dude. No, but I would say Rosalie is was the only one who kind of like, defended Bella and like was like when they were all talking about whether or not they should make Bella a vampire everyone was like oh totally yeah and like Edward's only reason for not making one was his fear for her immortal soul which like okay whatever dude that's not that interesting but like Rosalie's reasoning for voting no was actually interesting and like added depth to her character whereas Edward's reason didn't so much like I I know I haven't read 
New Moon in a long time, but we watched the movie recently. So I don't know if this is quote word from word from the book or was just in the movie, but like where she's like, you know, no one was around to like make this decision for me or vote no for me. And I wish someone was. So I'm going to vote no for you. Yeah, it's pretty similar. Was like a pretty good line, honestly. Mm hmm. And, like, another thing I remember from reading the books as a kid is, like, how she talks about how she was brought up in, like, a high level of privilege where, like, the the line I'm remembering that's, like, always kind of stuck with me, it was something along the lines of, like, the Great Depression happened, but it, I never noticed it because it didn't seem like it was happening for me. Again, that's, like, character growth where she started out in that position and then, like, had to, to learn and, yeah, I've faltering here but like rosalie was never even my favorite character but the fact that like this character has more of an interesting backstory with more character development and growth in it than either of the main characters is a bit of a problem for me personally but i can see how like that would add to this intentional escapism thing where like you can put whatever backstory and growth you want onto the main characters because the author's not going to do it for you and it's not even that like you can't have a backstory for Edward because he does have one. It's just, it's not one that's based in like character growth at all. Unlike pretty much everyone else. Yeah. And he never talks about it. Like he, he mentions at some point, like, Oh, he went around, he like rebelled for a little while and killed some people. And like, I want to hear more about that, Edward. That sounds rad. That sounds like an existential crisis that we could like maybe go into, but he just kind of like offhandedly mentions it and then never says anything again. Well, and we almost got that with Midnight Sun, and then, like, after it leaked, she really just, she really just didn't release it. That was wild. Bummer, because that was funny. Yeah, but we'll probably talk about that in another episode. Oh, we will. It's, it shouldn't, if this character is your main character, you shouldn't have to read a side book to have evidence of him ever having any character growth in his life. Exactly. Like, I feel much more strongly about the backstories and character growth of Alice and Rosalie than I do about anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yep, me too. Even not looking at backstories and character growth, just in terms of, like, having a personality, we see more just personality and character traits in these characters than we ever do in the main characters. Like, as soon as you see them, like, you know, you get these clues. Of <laughs> see, I don't really know how to put it because I'm not an English major like you. I do not have an English degree, so I, I have a lot of trouble finding the words to describe it. But, like, when we meet Emmett, it's clear off the bat that, like, he's, like, the sports vampire and he fits into this archetype and he has these character traits and you know this information about him and it helps you kind of see who he is as a character. And then that makes it so that when he does something out of character, it's interesting. Uh, same with Jasper. Like, Jasper is made out to be... And, like, he wasn't at all in the movies, which is super weird. But in the books, he was made out to be, like, this super charismatic guy who, like, could calm people down. Because, like, his secondary power was, like, controlling people's moods. And him being, like, I don't know, kind of the mediator of the group who could be diplomatic and help calm conflict. Like, again, we have these archetypes for him. We know what kind of character this is. And having all that makes it so that him being the one who is least in control of like um suppressing his hunger is interesting because that's a contrast and when you just don't give your main characters any character traits you can't get that like i think it really it keeps the book 
it keeps the story from being a good story for the sake of making it a more mass appealing story, which I guess worked out because it was hugely popular. Yeah, and I think that really ties into what I was saying earlier about how some of the things that are said in this book would be really awesome lines if they weren't delivered by Edward and Bella. Like, Edward doesn't have any contrast, he doesn't have any backstory, he doesn't have anything interesting to go off of. I mean, he has a backstory, but it's just, it's very much factual. It doesn't really have any, like, meaning or growth behind it that makes it interesting. It's just like, this is what happened, this is when it happened. It it reads more like a history book than a narrative. Exactly. And so when you get Rosalie, like you were saying, where she says, listen, I don't want you to be a part of this family, and it's not because I don't like you, but it's because I think you should be allowed to have this choice so i'm giving it to you that comes off way stronger because you know where she's coming from whereas when edward says things like i don't want to change you because i don't want to ruin your soul it doesn't come across as loving like we're supposed to believe these two characters are in love and like i have an easier time believing rosalie is in love with bella for that reasoning than i do with edward for having his like pseudo-religious reasoning exactly One more uh, that I kind of want to go over before we move on, because it's kind of possibly my favorite, is uh, Carlisle is really cool, actually. And we have the first time that Bella goes into the Cullen house, she hangs out with Carlisle and he just straight up gives her like the whole history of him. He's he's 600 and something years old and he was the son of a preacher who was trying to kill vampires. It's not like freaking Edward had the flu and now he's here. Like, we get... <laughs> that's what it was. No, it literally was that, but that's just such a good way of putting it. He had the flu and now he's here. <laughs> if you don't get your flu shot, you're going to end up a seventh wheel forever. I had to stop and count in my head how many Cullens there were. That's great. Because <laughs> for like hundreds of years, they were all coupled off except for him. And that's why they're so like, okay with Bella. They're just like, oh God, finally someone will take him. Jesus. Like, thank God. Someone please date our depressed brother. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, so she walks into Carlisle's office and he's like, oh yeah, hey, so this is what I'm about. He was the son of a preacher who was hunting vampires and he was really good at it. But then he got bitten and then he just kind of like roamed the streets and starved himself for a couple of weeks because he didn't want to kill people. Like right out of the gate, he was like this. Well, because he was a hunter before, like naturally you wouldn't want to immediately like change your nature that much. Like I can under- That's understand like he was in the perfect circumstances to be the vampire that invented vampire vegetarianism. Right. And then he's like... swims across the ocean and travels and then he hangs out with the vampire mafia for like what a couple hundred years and then he's like nah dude it's okay i'm not into this life at the moment so he just like leaves and starts his own thing like this guy i would read an entire book about just carlisle but that's not the story we got (laughs) i would honestly read an entire book about any of the side characters yes or like at least the vampires. Like, I would totally read an entire book about Alice or about Rosalie or or even Emmett or Jasper because, like, even though I don't find their backstories as interesting as I do with Alice and Rosalie, that character contrast, like, again, with Jasper being the most uncontrolled while also being the most diplomatic and, like, with Emmett being, like, the, the dopey jock guy but also being, like, a really caring person when Bella starts to get to know him. And that's just something... We don't get that with the main characters and it makes it less interesting. Mm -hmm. 
it's definitely a struggle for me personally to because I've been rereading them to prep for this podcast and it's it's a struggle for me to read through the Bella and Edward parts now because it's just them kind of talking about how much they love each other. Yeah, they're like being mushy and gross and it's fine to be mushy and gross if there's chemistry there, but there isn't any chemistry there between these two specifically because you're supposed to just project onto them. Mm-hmm. So it's it drags because like, I don't need that in my life right now. So it's just boring and bland. Yeah, and like, we'll definitely talk about this more when we get to like the... um the movie one review episode, but they're not even friends. Mm -hmm. They have no kind of interaction outside from just being in love with each other. That's it. That's their whole thing. And I guess like, if you want to just imagine that's you and imagine Edward is your ideal guy and just like put all these character traits on them, you can, but it's just, that's all it is. It's not there already. And it's so interesting that like that thing, which I now, considered to be the worst part of the books and it's definitely like we're not saying anything new this is totally something people were saying 10 11 12 years ago when we were reading these books and we were like i don't know what you mean by that but now reading them it's like oh this is the worst thing about these books but it's also why they were so popular yeah yeah um i guess it it was more like you're if you have a story where you have a fleshed out main character, you're putting yourself in a niche where only people who like that kind of character are going to read your book. But by having a story where it's a two, a cardboard cutout that you can just put yourself in, you're suddenly appealing to a way wider audience. And especially like in terms of like us as teenagers reading this and other teenagers who, who are going to read it, you don't notice that you're doing that. You don't notice that you're just putting your own personality traits onto this person. So when someone points out, like, this person has no personality, what are, why are you even reading this? You're like, what, what do you mean? They have my personality. And it's something we didn't notice until later. Mm. Yeah, you're right. And to branch out to other teen books at the time, like, you get uh, The Hunger Games, for example, and Katniss has a personality and she's, like, kind of a badass and you're like, oh, I want to be like her. But... In in Twilight, it's more of a, yeah, she's already like me because you can do whatever you want. Yeah, you can imagine whatever you want with her. And also, like, with these two blank slate characters, you also then in the background have almost like a charcuterie board of different kinds of character archetypes you can choose from to project onto, you know? So, like, you have the two main characters and you give them whatever personality you want to project onto them. And then, like, oh, if you're into teen drama... The other high school students are probably going to be your favorite characters. Your gay Alice is probably your favorite character. Your um kind of preppy um and like you know traditionally feminine things. Rosalie's probably going to be your favorite character. Like, and I'm thinking back to high school and like when we and all of our friends are reading this these books, and I'm thinking about like whose favorite character was Jasper, whose favorite character was Rosalie, whose favorite character was was Emmett and it's like oh that's because that's who they were projecting onto and these were the characters that were most similar to them and then they just project themselves directly onto the main characters because like I was only reading those books for Alice I'm gonna be honest like I never found the main love story super interesting even back then yeah Alice and Jasper were really the the best yeah I was very much like Alice is so cool Jasper's kind of boring but he's fine (laughs) and that was all I cared about yeah which made the second book very hard oh the second book 
Oh boy. It's a different episode. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause we got to move on to, to another point. So we've talked about how these books kind of appealed to people because they had these blank slate characters that gave the books themselves mass appeal. And, and what we've talked about, I guess the interior factors of the books that made them popular. Like what in the book did people actually like, which is a little hard to come up with things, but we sure did. <laughs> So the next thing is like outside of the book, like taking a Doyleist view versus Watsonian. What outside factors and the timing of this made this a thing that could be popular? And a big part of that is that there weren't a lot of options back then. If you wanted to read this kind of story, I would say Twilight itself actually influenced a huge genre shift in what was YA fiction. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, the friend that sold me on Twilight probably told me something about the fact that, yeah, it's a vampire love story, but it's mainly about the girl. And I don't know, I thought that was interesting at the time because, yeah, I didn't realize it because I was like, what, 11 or something, but didn't have a lot of female characters to have that with. Another weird thing about that, though, is like, I'm thinking back to the books I read at the time and what was popular at the time. And it's like a lot of the books with like, Specifically fantasy books, fantasy YA fiction, most like the two big ones at the time were Percy Jackson and Harry Potter, which both had male protagonists. And the ones that I can think of with female protagonists were written 15 years prior, like Howl's Moving Castle came out in the 70s. The other big vampire romance, I think um, the Vampire Diaries came out in 1992. Like we didn't have anything contemporary that was about women that had female teenage protagonists and that kind of made twilight our only option like this was way before the dystopia boom and like i would say twilight partially caused the dystopia boom like i think without twilight we wouldn't have had hunger games yeah i think so too we had hunger games and divergent and like bunches of them that i meant to read and never did like there was a lot after that yeah and um also, like a lot of female authors, there weren't a lot of female authors back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, that's a stupid thing to say. There were lots of women who were writing, but J.K. Rowling's awfulness aside, we can't forget in order to get published, she had to go under J.K. Rowling so that people wouldn't know it was a female author because people were worried like little boys weren't going to read a fantasy book if it was written by a woman. Yeah. And after Twilight, that changed a little i know um one author that i was talking to around the time like around like 2010 an author came for a visit at my local library i won't say her name i won't say what the book was because i i have my own opinions on the book but i know that she did say to me before twilight got popular she couldn't get published she was sending her books out to tons of publishers tons trying all these different ways to try and get her books published. And she had a bunch of books and nothing. Nobody would even look at her. Nobody would call her back until Twilight came out. And then she was allowed to make suddenly multiple franchises out of her books. And I think she wrote like two or three different trilogies that were all fantasy with uh, female protagonists. And you know what? I want to take back what I said earlier. I said there was nothing contemporary. Um, there was Holly Black. Um, I remember I was a huge fan of Holly Black at the time, but there definitely wasn't as many contemporary fantasy novels for girls as there were for boys. Especially not big ones. No. Yeah, because I think like Holly Black, like 
I consider her pretty big, and I think she was pretty big in, like, the YA scene at the time, but she's far from a household name. Like, I can go up to anyone on the street and be like, Percy Jackson, and they'll be like, yeah, I know what that is. Or Harry Potter, and everyone's gonna know what that is. People are not gonna be the same when I say, like, if I name a Holly Black book, or say Holly Black, um... Like, if I say Tiff or the, the coldest girl in Cold Town, people are much less likely to know what I'm talking about. I don't know what that is. See, there you go. <laughs> and those were both urban fantasy novels written by um, by Holly Black, who was probably one of my favorite authors in high school. Fair enough. And going back to Twilight, outside of just teenagers, though, the book itself was really easy to read. Like, the writing style was very easy to parse, and when... When you compare it to a lot of other popular fantasy titles, like Harry Potter even is a little more difficult to read. Aragon, which oh my nobody remembers, but which I really liked, um, was a lot. I remember Aragon, and I remember not being able to read yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I remember a lot of people that I talked to said they just straight up wouldn't read Aragon because it was a lot. It was very hard to not trip up <laughs> reading that one. And here's the thing, like, it's very easy to hear a child say, oh, no, I don't want to read Aragon because it's so hard and think that's because of the length of the book. It has absolutely nothing to do with the length and entirely about the language. Like it was very heavy language. It used a lot of big words that kids didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you had to look up the the meaning of words like it made it all of that kind of made the barriers to entry a bit higher. Whereas with Twilight, it's it's very it's written in a very simple language. The The paragraphs are very short. As an SEO professional, like I can look at this and draw comparisons to how uh, like best practices for writing blogs so that people are actually able to read them. Yeah, exactly. It's very easy to just open it up and take off running. You don't have to visualize that much even. Like Stephanie Meyer is really good at describing like the setting and, and feelings and whatever, but it's not flowery language it's very straightforward it's like oh i went outside and it was raining and it was gloomy and gray and i hated it and i got in my truck like that's i know exactly what's going on i can feel it but it's not you know it's not flowery or poetic at all yeah like and just jumping to what you just said even though it's not a direct quote you say it's gloomy and it's gray and i hate it you're describing the scenery because you say like oh it's very straightforward but it's It's not straightforward in a factual way. It's straightforward in a way that tells you exactly the information you need to know about it Mm -hmm. without having paragraphs and paragraphs of exposition describing the rain. Like, you could describe it factually. You could be like, it was raining. It was raining this hard. It was raining at this time. The sky was this amount light. And that's very boring. Or you can just get really into the flowery language of it and just talk about how it makes you feel forever. And that's also really boring and also doesn't tell you anything about what the setting looks like. Stephanie Meyer was very straight to the point. She would give you a sentence about what it looked like and a sentence about how it made the protagonist feel. So you knew the mood of the scene and you knew what the scene looked like and you could move on. There was never any like, she never had paragraphs and paragraphs of exposition, but she still got the point across very clearly, which made these books, which like you can argue for or against this style of writing for whether it's a good style or if it's a lazy style and a bad style, but it just makes it so easy to read and it makes it so that the barrier to being able to read this, the level of reading you have to be at is actually very low and the level of commitment you need to give to it is very low. Exactly. Like I, I have a lot of not so nice things to say about Twilight, but something that I can say is that I really do enjoy the writing style. Like I, I also love 
again, Aragon, the like the flowery, the the difficult, whatever. Sometimes I just want there to be more of that, like, you know, metaphors and whatever, but there's something really nice about just getting into it, you know? And I remember at one point I was reading it and somebody was talking to me and it took me like a couple of seconds to remember that I wasn't in Forks at the time. Like it's, (laughs) she doesn't describe a lot, but she describes exactly what you need to know to get you there. And I think that's, I don't know. It's, it's just enjoyable. I think it's almost like, you know, it's the junk food of, of books, but I don't even want to say that because like, well, I don't like Stephanie Meyer and I don't like these books. Uh, I don't think it's fair to discredit this writing style because it's a very valid writing style that is useful like uh, again like this is I I work in SEO I work in marketing and this is exactly the kind of way I recommend people write blogs and like when I'm making those recommendations it's not because I think people are stupid and need and can't handle long paragraphs it's because I'm thinking like people have a lot on their mind people with learning disabilities exist people who have a lot going on in their lives who have trouble focusing on one thing exist. And like, we're trying to write text in an accessible way. And I find just the way this book is written very accessible. I started rereading Twilight. I didn't get very far into it, but I found it much easier to re- Like I was kind of reading it at the same time as I kind of started reading some Discworld books. And I found Twilight much easier to read, even though the story of Discworld was much better because of the way she writes yeah exactly there's terry pratchett is great but he's he's something (laughs) (laughs) there's there's a lot of work around to get to where you're going also like in that vein of like this was a very accessible easy to read language um i think that's a big reason of why it appealed to adult women as well as teenagers because like when i was a teenager or when i was like 12 13 i could read three three inch thick novels in a week so easily i would just burn through them and as an adult like i'm more distracted it takes me a lot more work to kind of sit down and get into a book and get into the right headspace like it's so so much more work and so much harder and i kind of now understand like when i was a kid i was like well i'm reading five novels a week why can't my mom read harry potter and like i kind of get it more now and I can get like how something like this it's very easy to read that you can kind of sit down and read a few paragraphs and put it down again and it's fine to like read while you're in a cafe the noise isn't going to distract you because it doesn't require a lot of brain power to parse what's going on and I could see that as like probably a big reason it appealed to adult women at the time yeah this is like a 30 to 40 percent brain book Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. Like, sure, a heavy book that you need to be in a completely silent room with no distractions, no music, in the right headspace, completely focused on that book can be a wonderful, marvelous thing. But also kind of it's nice to have something that you can just pick up, read for a few minutes on the bus and put down and not need to reread that statement three times before you understand that section of the text. You can just keep going with it. It's a fluff book. Oh, it's 100% a fluff book. And like when we were doing research for this episode, we actually went and like read some snippets from romance novels. And like, it's very, I mean, obviously this is a romance novel, but like Harlequin romance novels that are are intended for an older audience. And like the style of writing is very similar. Mm-hmm. And yeah, again, 
because you're meant to project on the characters. It's not really about the story, and it's just so you can just get in and get where you need to go. Yeah, it's it's the candy of books. Yeah. Which, unfortunately, while I think this writing style is is great and has a lot of like pros to it, it's kind of unfortunate that it became so popular with teenagers when it had so many really negative messages and really harmful content in it. Which we're not talking about in this episode, but I just want to make sure, like, because this is our first episode, we're still very clear that, like, we are critical of these books, but right now we're talking about why they were popular. Yeah, we've got <laughs> lots of opinions. We've got a lot to, of shit to talk about these books, but just for this episode, we'd like to just kind of talk about some of the pros of it and why it was popular. <laughs> I just don't want people to take this a lot wrong way. Exactly. It's called Breaking Twilight for a reason. <laughs> But yes, I mean, speaking of teenage girls and that it was so popular with them, like people always underestimate the power that teenage girls have. Like if you really want to boil down why these books were popular, it's because the people that were interested in it primarily were teen girls and they always spark the trends, whether you think so or not. That's oh, how it goes. Absolutely. Like they were popular with adult women, obviously, but they weren't, weren't popular with adult women until after they were popular with teenage girls. And a lot of people underestimate like how much of culture is influenced just by teenage girls because they see, I don't want to like say any stereotypes here, but there is kind of like this cultural trend of like teenage girls will, will talk about their interests more and engage with them more than uh, teenage boys tend to. Like I, I'm thinking about like Beatlemania and, and Star Trek. Mm -hmm. The Beatles and Star Trek are huge cultural icons now but at the time like they were mostly consumed by women and it was women who who saved star trek when it got canceled and it was women who were writing zines and creating fan content around this and kind of driving the the culture and popularity around it and and same with the beatles although i don't think the beatles were are, are good in my personal opinion the reason we still remember them now is because of the appeal they had with teenage girls and the way that teenage girls interact with things that they are a fan of and how that is different culturally from the way other demographics do. Mm -hmm. And Beatlemania specifically, I kind of want to hone in on that. Now, when I think of the Beatles, I think of like dudes who say that Beatles are the best. But <laughs> but if you ever see any of those videos from when the Beatles were touring, you can barely hear the Beatles do their concert over the sound of screaming women. And it's... It's the same, like, if you just look at a picture of the concert, like, there were not very many men there. It was all women. Exactly. So, like, it's really hard to argue with points like that because, yeah, the Beatles are big and famous now and they were big and famous at the time, but who was there? Yeah, who was there and who was allowing them to continue to be famous? Like, who was driving that? Yeah. And teenage girls, despite being this, are always the most shit on. Like, think about pumpkin spice lattes and Uggs and all of those things. Like, those are all things that we love to hate teenage girls for liking, but they're going to keep doing it. And in, like, 30 years, maybe we'll think of Uggs as a, a culturally iconic piece of fashion. Could be. Could be. Yeah, like, if you, you really want to boil down why Twilight was so popular, it was because it was popular with teenage girls specifically. And, and yeah, it lit the match. Mm-hmm. I want to acknowledge that with these things, this is, we're very much talking about white teenage girls, like Uggs 
and, and pumpkin spice lattes and especially the Beatles were very much talking about a privileged group of white teenage girls. And like, I still think that the point stands that teenage girls are the drivers of culture, but within the subsection of teenage girls, it is still predominantly privileged white girls, especially when it comes to things like the Beatles and Elvis, maybe a little bit less so with Star Trek, but like as a podcast hosted with two white people, this is not something I think we are equipped to really analyze and get into. But that all being said, like talking about teenage girls in general terms, while they are the drivers of culture, I think the fact that they are also the most ridiculed demographic of people for their interests is part of why things become popular. Like VSCO or VizCo or whatever it's called, girls, I would have never heard of them if it wasn't for the fact that people make fun of them constantly now. And with the Beatles, like there were all these think pieces criticizing Beatlemania and the way women were acting. And that contributed to them just getting more publicity. And I think Twilight, very specifically, that's part of it. Teenage girls like Twilight. And then suddenly we had a whole culture built around men making fun of teenage girls for liking Twilight. And then we have this culture of women who were like, oh, I'm not like other girls. I'm not like those girls. I don't like Twilight. And it, it's like this cycle of, of teenage girls like something. Everyone else jumps to shit on them for it. So they just like it even harder. And it just grows. It, it just gives the thing more popularity. And it's like this vicious cycle that even if it wasn't a thing that, that was that popular or that good to begin with, it's going to go back and forth until it becomes the only thing anyone talks about. And if it's the only thing anyone's going to talk about, you're going to check it out more often than not. Yeah, like I would say Twilight was equally popular for how hated it was as it was for how liked it was. Mm hmm. I want to go see the Cats movie, which I am, you know, 100% positive is going to be garbage, but it's all everyone's talking about right now, so I might check it out just to see. Yeah, but, like, even if you didn't see it, the, the only reason either of us heard of it was probably because of people making fun of it. I don't think I've seen a single positive post about Cats. Yeah, things can get famous and make a lot of money for, for being hated as much as they can for being loved. It's all publicity. Yeah. I mean, I don't agree with the the cliche, any publicity is good publicity, but in the case of Twilight, like, it really worked for it. Mm -hmm. So I think that pretty much sums up, like, between us, what we found are the reasons that Twilight was popular. If you think uh, that we missed something, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Breaking Twilight. You can follow us on Twitter at Twilight underscore pod and on Tumblr at Breaking hyphen Twilight. Or email us at breakingtwilightpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.